Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. As always on Tuesdays, we have the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com, Andrew Malcolm at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter, and of course, redstate.com, both VIP and non-VIP contributions this week. We're going to get to both of them. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, it's it's good uh, to have you here. You know, there's, there's, June has always been my favorite month, and not just because it's my birthday month, but it's a, it's a, um, in June, you've still got July and August, and June Saturdays are the best days of the year because you still got Sunday. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just wonderful. I love, I love the month of June. It's great. So I'm, I'm happy. I love the month of June because it rhymes with so many other good things. Moon, spoon, tune. I, you yeah. know, it was a songwriter's, everything's either May or June in songs, you know, because those are the two easiest, those are the, how many? Yeah, one syllable. One syllable. Yeah, it's A or U. It's easy to, it's easy to rhyme those. <laughs> how many things, how many things actually rhyme with April, right? Yeah. <laughs> or March. Anyway, March, starch. Yeah, that doesn't really work. No, um, no, no. Yeah, September, November, you could say remember, and I think I know three songs right off the bat that do that, but right. yeah. Anyway, off of Tin Pan Alley for the moment and back onto politics, um, we're going to get to your two uh, columns at redstate.com, but first I want to talk to you a little bit about fact-checking, media fact-checking, Andrew. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're already laughing. Um you know, we got a lot of fact-checking in the previous administration. A lot of it. Tons of it, right? Tons we, of it, yeah. We, we, had the, we had the presidential lie daily counter. And to be fair, well, there was quite a bit of material to work with in the previous administration. To be fair, to be to- totally fair. However, there seems to be no lack of it here and yet. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is because Joe Biden has been making a whole lot of claims about the oil industry, about refiners, um, and all of them, if you actually bother to go check check out the data on it, all of them turn out to be uh, drizzly falsehoods. And I'm actually cleaning my language up here because I really wanted to say something else. But um, yeah. they all they all turn out to be, well, like, like four Pinocchio lies if anybody was assigning Pinocchios. Uh, they turn out to be pants on fire lies if anybody was... <laughs> If anybody was monitoring the um, the the uh, thermal signature of uh, of trousers um, when it comes to Joe Biden, unfortunately, <laughs> nobody has. And it's been at least a week and a half now since he's gone on these uh, tirades, trying to trying to redirect blame on on inflation to corporate greed, Putin's price hike, blah 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 blah, all of which is false, and none of which is being covered by your traditional media fact-checking organizations. PolitiFact, factcheck.org. Uh, I mean, none of these guys are, are taking on Joe no. Biden. No. Are they on vacation, man? I, I, they like June, too. I, You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, it's so blatant that it's funny, except that it should matter. Uh, and the stupidities that biden does uh, i had i had a tweet saying he's he has this unique skill of making stupid mistakes in little things and big things 
So he wants to show how virile he is, so he rides a bike and falls. Um, he wants to show how tough he is on Russia and Putin for invading, so he uh, engineers a, 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 an allied oil embargo. And what happens? Because no youngins in the White House know anything about markets, the shortage puts the prices up. And there's lots of customers for oil around the world, India and China included. So Putin is actually making billions more in oil sales now than he did before the war. So, you know, everything that, um, that Biden touches turns to fecal material. And it, it's, it would be funny, except yeah. nothing ever, ha nothing ever happens. You know, no, I mean, it, it, if, if he wasn't old and frail and had a funny old man gait, no one would care about falling on a bike. Right. Uh, right. It, you know, everybody falls on a bike. Uh, I can tell you that I have made that same maneuver in my 20s, right? Where you yeah. got the toe clip on, you forget the, your toes in the toe clip, and you end up, you know, ass over, uh, ass over kettle. Because <laughs> you're I, trying to I, get I, off your bike. Yeah, I've done I, that before. I've never, I've never pedaled with, uh, with, with a toe clip. I don't, I don't understand. My PF flyers always stayed on the, on the pedal. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, it, it just came standard issue for bicycles in like the 80s when I when I was, really? when I was actually, yeah, yeah, it was just, it was always there. So, uh, I mean, you could take it off, but I just never bothered to take it off because I, I felt that, you know, a guy in his 20s probably should be able to, to, to maneuver around a toe clip. And I, I found out that that wasn't true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and the memes will go on and, you know, you can tell that it hurts because the the Biden folks are quite, quite quiet. Um, well, I mean, it's, and it's, it's really a, it, again, this is more of a media bias fits issue. The meme. Yeah. It fits the meme. Well, it's more of a media bias issue too, because I remember when Trump had to walk down that ramp and apparently it was a slippery ramp and he was walking slowly and he was uh, getting support from some general, I forget who it was. Um, Man, it was all over the place. Maybe he's too yeah. old for this job. Maybe he's too frail for this job. He can't even handle a ramp. Well, okay, you know, fair play. But if you're going to do that, then talk about how Joe Biden fell up the stairs to <laughs> Air Force yeah. One and yeah. how he fell off a bicycle while it was while it was stopped. Even though I've done that same thing, um, you know, it, it just again be consistent if you're going to fact check every utterance out of donald yeah. trump and there's nothing that says that you shouldn't i mean it's fair game he's president he was president and so anything he says is fair game for for criticism and um and correction we'll do the same thing for joe biden because there's no, still there's yeah. a ton of material there every time he opens his mouth he's saying something that just flat out is not true well i i see garrity had a had a a, a column that that now age is okay to talk about for joe biden well yeah um, I, That's the i've been too. talking about it forever but um he's he's old he's older yeah. than i am ed i mean that's old um <laughs> not by much but he is he's older he, than i am and that's that's also kind Pearl of old harbor yeah. for pete's sake yeah so um it's a legitimate it's a legitimate issue to talk yeah. about. 
the frustration comes, I think, for people who are genuinely concerned. I mean, what's this guy saying to other leaders or, or the, they're they're treating him with appropriately disdain you know remember when he uh came late as usual to the meeting in uh in london and boris johnson was chairing it and he brought up an issue that they'd already taken care of and johnson just dismissed him with his hand um there's a lot of that going on the, and, the same thing happened actually they were um I think they were discussing it on CNN yesterday or the day before. You said this is Monday when we're recording it. So Sunday. Um, and it was, was it uh, Melanie Zanone or Zanona that was talking about this on, um, on CNN's, uh, uh, it wasn't um, State of the Union, but it was um, Inside Politics, I think, that Melanie Zanona was on. And he was supposed to meet with some uh, key Capitol Hill Democrats to talk about how to message on inflation. He showed up late for that meeting too, and apparently really annoyed the Democrats that are trying to carry his water. Right? It's like, no. <laughs> hi, would you help me? But I'll be an hour late. Right. It's, and I guess, and well, this speaks to what I see as his arrogance. You know, I mean, he, I'm president, so it must be okay yeah well it's true he'll get away with it and you don't see anyone in the media or anywhere calling him out on it and who have democrats got to turn to you know he's the only democrat president around so well you gotta, you gotta take it and i guess he knows that so i i or, i i, I some days I, I have to correct you on this andrew there is another i feel like i feel like um What's his name? Yoda from Star Wars, right? You say, he's our only hope. You know, you're sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, that boy is our only hope. And I'm saying, I am Yoda. I'm saying, no, there is another. Because Hillary Clinton was speaking up the yeah. other day <laughs> as she did an interview on Friday with Financial Times and uh, the uh, New York Post picked it up on Monday uh, saying that she is she's not going to run again, Andrew. She's telling everybody she's not going to run again. To which I said, "Who asked?" But she yeah, is nobody. She is saying, "Oh yeah, I'm not running again." Um, but but uh, she wants her name to be in the discussion. Apparently so. Yeah. So, but but it's interesting what else she said, which is that the Democrats really need to stop talking about the transgender debate. And um, the Financial Times uh, American editor, uh, America's American National News editor. Uh, Edward Luce was saying, what what sense does it make to depict J.K. Rowling as a fascist? And she's saying, yes, we're, yeah, that makes no sense. We're standing on the precipice of losing our democracy and everything that everybody else cares about then goes out the window. Um, but, you know, so stop talking about all this stuff until we actually win elections is what she's saying. Not, Of yeah. course, they, they just won an election. They're about ready to lose another one. But... Um, she went after the whole defund the police thing. She's not in favor of that. Um, it doesn't even pass the common sense political uh, politics test not to believe that you need policing. Um, so she is speaking up, but that Andrew, just bear in mind, she's not running for president. No, that's right. I'm not running, nor nor will I consider it unless someone else asks yeah right unless i'm drafted unless you guys really want right, me right really right. really want me and part of the problem andrew is that they just don't have a lot of other options and yeah I was no, talking they about... don't because they're all ancient yeah i mean trump trump is no kid but 
the youngest guy in the crowd is Schumer, and he's what seventy-one. Yep. It's, um, they, well, part of it, and this is interesting, goes way back to Obama. Democrats and actually the media didn't pay much attention to 2010 to the real impact. They paid attention because it was an historic, uh, what did Obama called it, shellacking when the Democrats in his first midterm lost 63 House seats. But what isn't talked about, and you have, but others haven't, is they lost nearly a thousand state seats. Uh, they turned over state house after state house. At one point, there were 34 out of 50 governors were Republican, and 16 or 18 of them had both houses in control. Well, what that did was create this this opportunity. First of all, because they did reapportionment to help the Republicans in 2010, and then they just did it again in 2020, but. Uh, was that they could show people at the state level how the Republican philosophy of government works. And governors are very pragmatic. You know, they're less ideological right. uh, than, uh, than others. I mean, look at Scott Walker or any of those guys. They, they win because they get the job done. And yes, they're Republican and they take conservative stands, but more importantly, they deliver. Uh, and uh, when there's strikes, they act tough. Um, so that we've gone through uh, now more than a decade of Republicans at the state level being able to show what they can do. And that's made them stronger. Uh, and uh, uh, so that, that's a devastating loss. Even in the, the, the Trump midterm, I think Democrats gained 200 out of the thousand seats back. So it's still been, it's a lingering damage to them, uh, yep. but a lingering opportunity for Republicans. So they haven't had a lot of governors coming up um, to, to sh having proven their vote getting ability at the local level, delivering on services. It, it really hurt their farm team system. Well, that and I think the fact that and the way they lost it, you know, Van Jones was talking about the um, results in the Texas special election. And we haven't had a chance to talk about that, actually, because that was taking place on the day that we aired your, um, you know, our last conversation was on Tuesday of last week when uh, Mayor Flores won outright, won outright that um, election down in Texas 34. And Van Jones was on CNN and he said, you know, <laughs> We're becoming, meaning the Democratic Party, we're becoming the, the, the party of the very well off and the very poor. And we don't know how to talk to anybody else. He's, you know, he says, I've never met a Latinx. I've never met a BIPOC. <laughs> he says, these are things that the really wealthy, you know, people say amongst themselves. And then they try to talk to other people and they're, and people are just turned off by that. And then for the very poor, they promise them everything and don't deliver. And so those people get really upset and, and walk away. And you're just left with, you know, these, this really core of weird people. He didn't say weird people, but he did use the word weird. And um, it's the same thing James Carville was saying after the Democrats got their butts handed to them in Virginia in November, which is that this party talks like they're in the faculty lounge 
they're not talking, yeah, yeah. and they're not talking to people the way that people talk. And so it's you can't you can't wonder why it is that people are walking away from the Democratic Party. It's because yeah. the Democratic Party doesn't represent them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, re Republicans haven't been all that great at talking to regular. Well, I agree people. with that too. Yeah, <laughs> all that great talking to, to regular people, but. They deliver on the services. And after time, that sinks in. People go, you know, I don't know. He seems, he plays a lot of golf, but I like what he does, you know? And and uh, that, I, I've heard a lot of people say that about Trump. You know, I mean, they, yeah. they, they disliked his behavior immensely, but boy, did he deliver on the economy, on jobs, on getting uh, American troops out of trouble abroad, uh, talking tough. Um, you know, uh, how many, Demo was there were three, three Democrat administrations and it took Trump to talk to North Korea. Now, nothing concrete came from it except several years of no more testing, right. which is a pretty good accomplishment. Yeah, which isn't bad. But I mean, oh. Trump, Trump is going to have the same problem that Democrats have, which is that they're all looking backwards, right? Everybody's looking backwards. You need a party that's going to look forward. And if they're running Biden again, I mean, it's it's going to be a disaster. I don't, I I mean, I'll make the prediction right now. There's no way that Biden runs again in 2024. Not unless yeah. he changes direction, and as, especially on energy policy, because it's going to be a misery. The economy is going to be a misery. Uh, we'll be probably in year two of the recession for most of that uh, for most of that presidential campaign at the rate yeah. we're going here. And um, and even if you're coming out of it by then, the the after effects of that are going to re redound for two or three quarters after that. I mean, yeah. just ask George H.W. Bush. You know, they yeah. were talking about the recession, talking about the recession in, in, in the 92 election. It was over in late 91. <laughs> the recession was over. We were actually back to growth by early yeah. 1992, but people were still struggling and it felt recessionary. And so... And so you, I think that's a really clear example, actually, of looking forward versus looking back, because that was a generational election, right? You had, yeah. you, had uh, you know, Bill Clinton, who came out of the centrist Democratic Leadership Council, you know, who was not hard left guy, or at least wasn't, you know, positioned as a hard left guy, talked centrist, really did talked to voters where they were at. He wasn't using the faculty lounge stuff. He was listening to James Carville's advice. Um, and James Carville was very, very good at what he was doing. Um, and you had George H.W. Bush, very honorable guy, but he's a holdover from World War II, right? He's a holdover from, yeah. from the greatest generation in a, in a country that didn't want to look to its past, that wanted to look to its future. And I think you get, that's the same problem that both Biden and Trump are going to have if they both run in 2024. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. George H.W. Bush told me once in New Hampshire in 99 or 2000 that he knew two weeks out from the 92 election that he was going to lose. And I said, oh, how did you get up in the morning? <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, you know, you never know. Politics is unpredictable. But uh, but we knew it wasn't it wasn't going to go well. Uh, Clinton was the first uh, modern president that didn't serve in the military. Right. And, and Obama was the second. Yep. Um, and Biden is the third. Biden's the third, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so you're right. We're out of that uh, out of that generation. Uh, well, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're almost out of that that greatest generation. I mean, Joe Biden wasn't technically part of the greatest generation. Neither is Donald Trump because they were both born during the war. But um, but it's close enough to where you know, boomers boomers are still overrepresented in in the um, in the electorate, but they're still not a majority of the electorate. They're no longer a majority of the electorate. And there's right. a lot more non-boomers in the electorate now than there are boomers. And frankly, I think, you know, actually Obama was the first non-boomer. Um, well, I take that back. I mean, how many, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, George W. Bush was the, was the first non-boomer technically really was the first non-boomer. Um, well, actually, no, 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 because he was boomer. I mean, non-greatest generation is what I meant to say. But, um, but you know, it's we've been going backwards. We've been crabbing backwards to to that to that generation. We're not quite all the way back because those people are in their eighties and nineties now. That's um, right. Yeah. Well, we want to. We want to. We want a smart, viable grandpa for president. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Eisenhower was a, was a really good one. Reagan was another one. Yep. Uh, and he endured, you know, withering criticism about taking naps. And Lyndon Johnson took naps all the time, but he didn't yeah. get criticized because he's the other party. But it's um, it's it's hard to look into the future for Americans now. It seems to me. Yeah. Uh, it's depressing. Um, you look, you think we got what over 900 days left of Biden. Uh, and my fear is, boy, what can happen? Remember Putin didn't move. Uh, Putin moved on Crimea when Obama was president. Yep. When Trump was president, nothing, no move on anybody else. Two months after Trump left the white house, Putin was organizing the invasion on the border of Ukraine uh and my com and china of course can do the same with taiwan uh uh they they're they they've signed they tried to sign for bases in in uh, abu dhabi they uh uh where was it that they just um was it burma or somewhere where they they were they signed a deal to get a naval base the first one down in well i think it was the solomon wasn't it the solomon islands that they signed some sort yeah of well there was package? that but that wasn't for a base yeah there was that reaching yeah. out and then there was there was a country that they signed a deal with uh and we um anyway um they've got plenty of time to plan some mischief or worse uh, with Biden and, you know, let's be real about it. Him having, even though it was a disastrous withdrawal, him having celebrated this as a great success, uh, it'd be very hard for him to send American troops anywhere. Yep. Um, yep. And to Taiwan, uh, we could provide arms, you know, billions of tons of arms um, to anybody as long as it's a proxy war uh, but yeah. I, can't, I can't see biden uh even if he's never going to run again saying well okay we're going to send troops over to 
help Formosa stay free. Right. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So they know that. They know that. Uh, the enemy, our uh, opponents, strategic opponents. <sighs> yep. And that's the reason why it's important to project strength and competence when you're in the White House. I, I, we got to get to your two columns. We It's been a oh, great yeah. conversation, but I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. miss out in discussing your your your, your two pieces over at redstate.com. Um, the one that's in the clear, and everybody should read this one, Hunter Biden's ex reveals how she learned of his affair with brother's widow. Um, Jeez. I, yeah, yeah, who, I mean, raised, who raised that man? Um, I mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff coming out about him, talking about how he thinks of himself as a god and as, as his father is a god and his father, his father thinks of him as a god. Apparently, this is what he was telling people. Um, and his father was basically saying, get off the crack, yeah. <laughs> which which I agree with. I mean, I mean, that's, you know, addiction can happen to anybody's anybody's family members. But the fact that they that they've been basically coddling this guy and 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 covering for him and he's been paying them back uh yeah yeah covering for him and him making millions and 10 percent to the big guy uh so they're dueling books out memoirs uh there's yep. of course hunting hunters has been here but um his ex-wife uh, wrote one and it was she didn't uh say much about joe biden except I mean, she's very circumspect about the president. She wasn't commenting on his presidency, except to say that he was very kind and generous to her the whole time that right. she was in the family. I think Kathleen Buell is the um, is Hunter's ex-wife, right? The Kathleen Buell right. is, is her name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she uh, she wrote that um, his addiction was was problems, and the day after. Um, his brother's funeral they were driving back to washington and he told her he was going to run run for office and she was shocked um and then they gruesome i mean it's really i felt kind of funny writing about it but you know it's the president's family um he you remember he abandoned his laptop at the repair shop and all that uh, oh yes all oh, that yeah. seamy stuff is coming out, and finally the media's gotten around to believing it. Well, he also left his iPad and uh, cell phone around the house. And his kids, who were obviously much younger then, uh, were poking through it and finding text messages and pictures of him with um, um, Bo's widow. Hallie, yeah. Yeah, and uh, texting with... Uh, Anyway, they were reading them loud, and they 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 took them and confronted their parents with it. And I guess Hunter was unfazed, but the mother was in shock, and she said she sat around the kitchen table looking at the texts, and he texting dozens of women that she'd never heard of, uh, and being cruel to some and being very tender to others, uh, and it was just a it was just a shock. And she and the Hunter claimed that. There was no romance with uh, Bo's widow before 2016, but um, Kathleen doesn't doesn't believe that. Um, yeah, uh, sure. One of her best friends was uh, was Bo's widow, and uh, she was reading in that when she shared her concern over 
mistresses and stuff. It, uh, it's, it's just so seamy and sad that uh, all presidential families have their troubles. I mean, Hillary Clinton's brother got in trouble and he needed a pardon. And, and, uh, uh, and so that's not unusual. It's just that it's current now and we're hearing about all the trouble and, and uh, it seems to involve uh, Joe in, uh, in some uh, backdoor ways. Yeah, well, I mean, there was claims that he was using the proceeds of these deals to pay for all the family expenses and all that kind of thing. And I mean, I the one thing that you can you can pretty much guarantee about a drug addict is that they rarely tell the truth. So yeah. I don't know I don't know how many of those claims are actually true. Probably very few. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, especially one that seems to be involved in sort of like this megalomaniacal sort of, or or maybe just maybe just simply a. Um, a manic disorder um where you tend to think of yourself as a god um that yeah. is that is part of that's part <laughs> of know, the it's just so symptoms. ridiculous it's yeah. just so well remember back in 2013 when joe was vice president he took air force two and he took hunter along and um uh to china and they've got pictures of them both yep. waving like it was a state visit but that was when hunter did his his um his big chinese business deals uh, with um, shady people in China. Uh, and yet Joe claims he never talked with them about business and was clueless. Yep. So I guess you don't have to be on drugs to fib. No, you don't, especially not in this uh, administration. I, by the way, the other the other ones, the VIP column, we won't get to that unfortunately oh, yeah. today. Now governing, it's the Taliban's turn to fight new bands of deadly Afghan insurgents. Yeah, and we'll talk yeah, a little one, bit about that next week. But what, Okay, all right. Well, one sentence is yeah. the, the, the insurgents now have insurgents. And, and they're challenging uh, the Taliban, but there's a whole bunch of them, not just one. Uh, and uh, that has implications for us because uh, the Taliban originally agreed. No one expected them to keep the promise but they originally agreed that they wouldn't allow foreign oper operations to uh organize terrorist acts against the outside uh and now you have al-qaeda and isis and all these franchises that have terrorist franchises that have moved in so they could very well plot and yep. no one's going to do anything about it in nope. afghanistan nope but i do have to leave you with this i just saw this over at the new york post uh, you know, while we're recording this, this is the federal observance of Juneteenth. Juneteenth was actually on Sunday, June 19th, which was the date in Galveston, Texas, that um, the proclamation uh, freeing slaves was first read aloud. It was in June 19th, 1865. That's Juneteenth. This is the Emancipation Proclamation, um, which emancipated Texas's slaves, but they didn't know about it for two years because obviously Texas didn't want to. Didn't want to say, oh, by the way, Abraham Lincoln says you're free, but we say you're not. No, they just they just <laughs> hit it. So um, the the Union Army, when they marched into Galveston, read the proclamation. And at the time, I think Galveston was the um, was um, more or less it may have been the capital. I'm not sure if Austin was the capital at that point, but they but the Union Army proclaimed it on June 19th, letting all the uh, letting everyone know that Texas's slaves were free. So that's the that's the uh, that's the background for this little piece in the New York Post about Kamala Harris. She was at, um, uh, on, on Monday, she was at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington. 
And this is what she told a, a group of um, uh, two dozen elementary school age children who were there to you know commemorate the holiday. I think we all know today is a day to celebrate the principle of freedom and think about it in terms of the context of history, knowing that black people in America were not free for 400 years of slavery. 400 years of slavery. So apparently they were just freed, but three years ago. That's a long time. That's a long time. I mean, even if you, even if you want to argue that Jim Crow was a form of slavery, which, you know, I mean, you can make an argument for that. Th that ended in 1963. So it's still not 400 years. Um, no, I mean, you know, we, 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 we ended slavery, uh, or at least made it illegal in the U S in with the 13th amendment, which was ratified and, uh, added to the constitution in 1865. So yeah, no, uh, 246, <laughs> yes, 400, no. And, um, <laughs> the white house, the post contacted the white house to ask about math. And they said a White House official uh, official acknowledged Harris's error, telling the Post that the quote the vice president was referring to 400 years since slavery began. No, she wasn't. <laughs> For she said 400 years of slavery. That's the quote. Yeah, Kamala Harris. You can't wait to put her out on the campaign trail to replace Joe I Biden. Can believe it? Yeah. yeah. I just. Oh my God. Just terrible. All right. Well, you know, we've come to that part of two, uh, of Tuesday's shows where we get the jokes of the week. Oh, yeah, and I Andrew, got a couple. Andrew, oh, Andrew does a lot of work digging these up, so and we always appreciate that's right. With a laugh. And there's not a lot of new ones. They're they're hiding the new ones. But as I had a Conan had a replay <clears throat> in Belgium, police arrested a one-legged suspect after someone stole a shoe from a store. Police caught him after a lengthy high-speed hop. <laughs> uh, Fallon uh, replaces the Obama's gotten the Halloween spirit the other day handing out dried fruit to 2,000 children and just like that they created 2,000 more Republicans <laughs> I actually kind of like dried fruit though I, I do have to admit I kind of like dried fruit okay <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Morrissey. <laughs> and finally, uh, Conan O'Brien replay. He says, in Virginia, someone stole dozens of pumpkins from homes and returned them to the porch completely carved. Police are describing the suspect as Martha Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they caught her too, because, you know, yeah, I, I never felt. I never felt as safe in this country as when Martha Stewart was locked up, <laughs> except for <laughs> except for that brief period when um, Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman were, were locked up. Were, and the, were yeah. locked up. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's right, when I right. felt the most safe in this country was when Martha Stewart was when Martha Stewart was behind bars, uh, because that was clearly what needed to. to she to, wasn't. She wasn't out doing cute stuff. No, no. At least it got her off the TV. I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to say, well, Martha Stewart says, no, that's okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Andrew, we always want to know what Andrew's Andrew says, because he's the prince of Twitter, the right. regent of redstate.com. And if you want to know what Andrew is saying, just go to redstate.com or you go to at AH Malcolm on Twitter. That's, that's, that's the simple right. way of doing it. That's how, that's, that's all you need exactly to do. Exactly right. And you better believe it. <laughs> I believe everything you say, Andrew. That's right. That's right. And I feel the same about you, Edward. Thank you, sir. I appreciate right. that. 
All right. Well, we'll tell a few more lies when we come back next week for next yeah. Tuesday's episode. Uh, because we don't have to worry about fact checkers. <laughs> Apparently, they're all on vacation. So you know, I, let me tell you. Let me tell you about how I rescued those dozen nuns from that biker bar in. Uh, <laughs> I think I think Joe Biden actually may have used that line. So I don't know. But Andrew Malcolm, that's a story for another time. Have yourself a great week, sir. Thank you, Ed. See you, everybody. When we come back, more non-fact check stuff from the, <laughs> the Ed Morrissey show. Stick around. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. I am very honored to introduce to you my guest today, uh, Father Robert Sirico, uh, who is co-founder of the Acton Institute, as well as a, 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 an accomplished author, accomplished uh, media analyst, and the author of a new book by Regnery, of course, Regnery being a unit of Salem, as we are here as well, The Economics of the Parables. And this is a book that's coming out this week, uh, and uh, and you can pre-order it now. Um, don't, don't wait for it to hit your bookshelves. Go ahead and pre-order, get it going. Uh, Father Sirico, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Ed. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, the Acton Institute does such great work on economics anyway. And and I know that, the, you know, you're co-founder of the Acton Institute. Uh, I know about the Acton Institute. In fact, when I was in Rome, I, I ran into a few people that were involved in the Acton Institute, which is great. Mm -hmm. But maybe we have you can, an office there. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Maybe you can start off by just telling us a little bit about the Acton Institute before we get into the book. Well, it was founded 32 years ago by myself and the co-founder, Chris Mowron, who is now the president. I'm the uh, president emeritus. Uh, and it was basically to do what I'm attempting to do in the economics of the parables, to create a dialogue between the market and uh, moral uh, values and theological insights, uh, a kind of translation, if you will, between the two, because people think these are completely separate. So to do that, we started the Institute, we hold conferences, we produce books and uh, videos more, more and more. We've just done a, a new um, documentary on the whole situation in Hong Kong. So that's really what it is to kind of get, uh, bring uh, informed economic thinking to good intentions. And the economics of the parables is, is exactly that effort as well. You go over the 13 parables that speak in, in, in part at least to economics and you know with recognizing of course that there's a lot more than economics going on in the gospel but oh yeah yeah but uh, but i mean we we see people trying to draw lessons and usually it's more or less the lessons that they want to draw for their own purposes yeah. from from parables and also from from acts and i mean we can get into that i'm sure that's you know that's not a parable but um we can get into that no but but the last part of the book i deal with a lot of these other economic things themes that run through the new testament that aren't parables and i do deal with the acts of the apostles in there as well but yeah. you're, you're it's important to start by understanding that i am not saying that the purpose of the parables is to teach economics right economics as an intellectual discipline comes later in history but what jesus does is use very practical uh, instances from human life and then show the kingdom of god the transcendent kingdom of god from this reality and the backdrop of it is that he's making a lot of assumptions about economics that uh, i think uh, advocates of the free free economy would share so let's start there. I mean, what what uh, assumptions, <clears throat> excuse me, do you see 
in the in these parables that Jesus teaches that um, that have that sort of understanding that free free market economics is a is the healthier direction for human economics. I think it's uh, you know in a real way it's the more natural and right. and that underscores the durability of the parables themselves that in in using these examples of market activity or contracts or private property. Jesus is using the natural state of affairs that occurs in the world of scarcity. Scarcity is what gives rise to the necessity to allocate resources. If we didn't have scarcity, uh, we wouldn't have economics. There'd be no need for it. You wouldn't have to put a price on anything because you'd have, you could wait it out. <laughs> there's no, right. there's no on your time or resources, you wouldn't have to uh, kind of produce or draw from the earth resources that would serve human needs. So all of this is there in the parables uh, and uh, supply and demand and contracts and labor shortages and productivity. And uh, all of these are in, in various um, parts of the parables. Right. And I mean, it gets, I mean, the parables talk about inheritance, you know, for instance, yeah. and, and, uh, and the role of stewards, um, yes. rather than the role of ownership and wealth, which I think is actually one of the best ways of looking at, at, um, at property and, um, a relationship to, to wealth right. is ownership. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, we're entrusted with something and you see that in the, the parable of the, the the bad steward right know, yes rip off his master uh but you also see it in in for instance the the stewardship of the um uh the wealth that that is entrusted to the the workers in the vineyard or the talents uh to are, are they're given stewardship of money and they're asked to be productive with uh, stewardship is really our relationship to the whole world. And the parables are trying to use this world to point to a world that goes beyond this world. Right. And, and it's the reason why I think sometimes people get lost in the um, literal uh, meaning of the parables, right? I mean, and this is this you're asking people to go beyond the literal here to consider oh, yeah. to consider yeah. you know what what this first off, what it meant. Historical. I mean, this is sort of like the four different ways to to um, to read gospel. Anyway, literally, historic, historically, you know, theologically, and that's uh, Saint you know, Augustine, yeah. right? Exactly. And you frustrate yourself by looking at uh, the parables and thinking, well, now, what about this or that detail of it? Because you're missing the point. The point isn't the story. The ambiguity of the story sometimes is precisely the point to get you to think more deeply and think of what the implications are for your life and for your response to whatever it happens to be, to the call of the gospel or to human needs or whatever. Well, that brings us to a, a more basic question, and I'll just, I'll just put this out here right now before we get back into the book, which is the question of why Jesus spoke in parables at all, right? And this question comes up in the Gospels. There are times when the, when, when the disciples are asking this question, too, and he says, you are given better understanding of this basically for a reason, uh, but right. I need to teach in this manner. And so I think that goes to your point about the, necess the necessity of that ambiguity, the necessity of people being able to unpack this for themselves. 
Also, he says, let, he has this very intriguing phrase, let him that has ears hear. Because yes. uh, he's speaking in a volatile context, you know, in some of these contexts, people are waiting to trip him up. And he uh, kind of cloaks what he's saying in a way that those who really aren't interested in the truth of this thing aren't going to hear what he's really saying about it. And so he entrusts it. But I think uh, another reason, and this distinguishes the parables from things like fables. Uh, these, this is not fantasy. This is the stuff of real life. Yep. And it's also what gives the durability of it. Because people, after all, still go fishing. They still plant seeds. They still uh, engage in contracts. They still have bills to pay. Uh, all of these things still exist. And that's why they're so, it's so durable that we can grasp what Jesus is saying and uh, kind of apply it to our own circumstance. So getting back into the book, and the book is The Economics yes. of the Parables by Father Robert Sirico, who's here with us right now. Uh, my friend Peter Grandich, who's a Catholic uh, econo uh, economist, he's somebody who appears regularly both on my podcast and on Relevant Radio, he's a great guy, is, yes. is, is very much, his, his, his main message now is about debt and the uh, gospel uh, warnings about debt. And what the uh, you know how how debt is never looked at well in the scriptures. What what do the parables tell us about debt and and you know how do they speak to that? Well, of course, uh, we're all indebted in one way or another, right? right now, the right. particular um, uh, parables here, particular lessons about debt. I'm thinking of the the story of the 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 men who received. Uh, the one who both, both I'm sorry, there are two men who are indebted to a king and they can't pay. Right. The king forgives them both uh, or forgives the one. And that one goes and holds the other one who's indebted to him to a greater uh, standard. In other words, he's not as generous. So uh, I think what your economist friend is getting to is a different point. And that is the fact that when we are in debt, uh, what we are spending on, what we are living on, is the generosity uh, of another person. We're living on somebody else's property. So we should even be more careful with what we have inherited from that person, what we borrowed from that person, than our own. Uh, you know, we can be frivolous with our own resources, but you, you don't have the right, the moral right, to be frivolous with somebody else's resources. So there's a bond of trust there as well. And then there are uh, other forms of debt that might not be immediately thought of as debt. And I'm thinking of the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. The, yes. the, takes his inheritance. Uh, that's a form of debt. He has a debt to his father now, uh, if it's nothing more than a moral debt. And it's interesting in that parable, because he goes and he squanders what he has, and he comes back, and it's the older son who is really ticked off because he says, you know, I've been here all this time slaving for you, and you've never let me have the fatted calf, and you've never let me have a party for my friends. And it's interesting to see that both of these sons are looking at the father in a very similar way. I mean, neither of them come out looking good. I know a lot of people feel bad for the 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 older son uh because you know i mean he was there the whole time but it, it really is kind of like um a lesson 
in gratitude. And it, it, we call it the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the, the parable of the benevolent, benevolent or the loving father. Because what we're trying to do is take both of his sons and bring them in, bring them together, uh, reconcile them to his own love. And those are forms of debt. Father, I'm really glad you brought up the older brother because I've always found the older brother to be the most fascinating part of the parable of the of the he prodigal is. son. And and he's the one who's still on the outside at the end. By the way, this is the ambiguity of the Gospels. It doesn't end. We don't really know what the end of that was. Does he come in? Doesn't he come in? You know, you can imagine it both ways. You can imagine him brooding in the darkness uh, all by himself and isolated, finding himself in the same position as his younger brother was in in the pigsty. Or you can Im imagine him just letting it go and coming in and embracing his brother. You know, I say that um, the struggle there is uh, he suffered from uh, Italian Alzheimer's. It's where you <laughs> think, but, but the grudge. <laughs> and you can destroy yourself with that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, and I I mean, there's lots of different paths. I can say that, that because I'm an Italian. That wasn't a hate crime. No, well, I'm I'm Italian on my mother's side. Really, I am Italian on my mother's side. So I, I am I am right there with you on that, uh, Father Sirico. Um, so let's get a little bit more into, I mean, I could go on this one parable. Maybe we'll just come sure, back and do a sure. podcast on just this one parable because I've just got all I, sorts of thoughts. But I want to really get to the book, The Economics of the Parables, that um, that is coming out this week. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about the parable of the talents, right? Because I think this is also a parable that people have difficulty um, grasping. Tell us a little bit about what the economics of this are and how the economics sort of unpacks this, this parable. Well, the basic story here, because a number of the parables are told in various gospels. So right. we get confused and parable of the talents is told one way in one gospel one way in another but the basic line of thought is the um, owner comes and leaves resources with these servants uh in the one uh, he leaves five talents by the way that word talent is an economic unit today we understand it in our common usage, it's a gift that we have, an ability that we have. But originally, this is where we get the word talent from, from the scriptures. So he entrusts the these monetary units to these three, five, two, and one. And he goes off and they go out, the two of them go out and are productive and they double the income. The one hides the money now it's important to understand that he doesn't lose the money right he hides it he buries it and when the master comes back you have this dialogue he he you know celebrates the productivity of the first two but he comes to the other one he's very harsh with him and he says what did you do you could have even if you just put it in the bank and got some some interest on it you could have done something with it but you didn't and here's what's very intriguing it's the response of this one, what he says, why he didn't do it. And I think it, in a way, um, exemplifies the attitude that much of the socialist ideology has uh, toward free commerce, toward investment and productivity. Because first he says, I was afraid. 
And you know, if you don't have a sense of risk aversion, uh, or I'm sorry, if you if you don't put aside risk aversion, you can't be successful in a market. So this man is afraid, and he's afraid because of his perception of who the master is. I knew you were a cruel man, gathering where you have not sown, and gathering where you had not scattered. So what he's saying is, I knew that you exploit people. You, you're not really productive. You gather things. And this is exactly what Marx's accusation is against uh, entrepreneurs or, or capitalists. So he has this, this mentality. Uh, what I think, and getting to the, the point I men mentioned earlier about the ambiguity of these parables and some, most all of them have some part of it that you don't, it's not quite told. I wonder what would have happened had the master come back and the two who were productive said, look, we invested your money and in. these looked like great investments, but they failed. What would have happened? Yeah. Uh, the master's reaction have been uh, to that. And, and I think, because what we very often forget is that not every market failure is a moral failure. If you've done your due diligence and you've done the best you can do and a storm comes and destroys the, the buildings, for instance, or you know this disrupts the supply lines, that's not a moral failure on your part. And I think that's a, an important lesson against the prosperity gospel preachers because the prosperity gospel preachers say that wealth is a sign that God is blessing you. And I don't, I don't believe that, right. uh, you know, uh, it's in a, in, in a way, the prosperity gospel is the flip side of liberation theology. Uh, liberation theology demonizes uh, wealth and prosperity gospel canonizes uh, wealth. And so the, these are two erroneous approaches to economics and, and theology. Both, right. And uh, um, prosperity gospel tends to demonize poverty, too. I should, I also, I'm sorry, know, did I say demonize wealth? Demonize poverty, yes. No, no, you said you said canonize wealth. So I'm just I'm just yeah, yeah, providing right. the parallel to that. Yeah, which is, exactly. you know, which is clearly not the message that Jesus is sending in the Gospels. You know, it's, 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 it's about serving the poor. It's about serving the needy, which, you know, brings right. us again back to the parables where you have, yes. um, you know, significant teachings here about caring for the poor. I and mean, we're not just talking about the Good Samaritan, we're talking about a number of these parables. Right. The Good Samaritan is another another great one, you know. Right. Uh, this man who invests himself personally in the uh, care of someone whose body is broken, whose life is in danger. And it's interesting that the Good Samaritan, that Jesus holds up this man who's an outsider socially, but is also a businessman because he's he's going on this road to Jericho back and forth. He's known by the innkeeper uh, and he's willing to invest himself personally. You have this this sense of his physical embrace of this man, lifting him up, putting him on his own animal, taking him to the inn and in effect, giving the credit card to the innkeeper and say, you take care of him. Uh, and if you spend any more than this, uh, I'll make it up to you on my way back. So it's interesting that Jesus, this is antithetical in my mind uh, to the welfare state 
This is the call for us to be personally grittily involved uh, in, in people's lives. You know, uh, on, on the question of wealth, by the way, a third of this book deals with other economic themes that you find in the New Testament. Uh, our friends at Regnery were surprised to see a full third of the book was dealing not with the parables. But I thought it was important as I was thinking it through. And, and one of the examples that I came up with, um, or that as I, as I was thinking, where, where do you see economics elsewhere in the New Testament? It's the call of the rich young ruler that you find in the gospel. It's very interesting because uh, as you think about that passage in most people's minds, there are a lot of assumptions that we have. For instance, one of the assumptions is that the first thing Jesus says to him is, give away all your property. That's not what Jesus says. The first thing Jesus says to this man is, sell all that you have. And then give to the poor. It doesn't even say give it all to the poor, but let's say it's all to the poor. If this man is going to really benefit the poor, he's going to have to be successful in negotiating the sale in the liquidation of his property. So this shows you the, the way you become a good servant is to be uh, a good negotiator. But right. then, go ahead. I was going to say, that gets us back to stewardship, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's part of it. It's a very subtle part of it. People miss it. But then you get the most famous, I think probably one of the most famous uh, metaphors uh, in the New Testament, how hard it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, it, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven. And this shocks the disciples because they say to, to Jesus, well, then who can get into heaven? Now, whenever I'm asked this, this is the single most frequently asked question when I'm giving a lecture, is this camel in the eye of the needle? I always ask them, the, the interlocutor or the audience, what was the next thing Jesus says? When the disciples say, who can get into heaven? People don't remember. All things are possible. All things exactly. Are possible. Yeah. Exactly. You're one of the rare ones who, who, who followed that. Oh, oh, maybe you've read the book. <laughs> I, you know, occasionally, probably not enough, though. <laughs> <laughs> but because it's only possible with God's grace, with his love. And that's the whole lesson. That's the gravamen of this story, is that you can't buy heaven. You can't trade your way into heaven. It, it has to come by grace, and that we're comes back to the question of stewardship. We're stewards of what we are entrusted with. So, getting to another part, you're talking about the 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 servant who hid the the single talent in the field and was chastised by by the um, Un unproductive. Uh, yeah, as unproductive. There's another parable where it's kind of celebrated that you, somebody hid a treasure in a field, right? It's this that parable of the hidden treasure in the field. And I love that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a great parable, but I am interested in seeing how you unpack that in terms of economics. Uh, well, the hidden treasure in the, in the field is, is interesting. To go back again to this question of the um, ambiguity that we see in these gospels, because there's a lot that's not said. Uh, what is not said is, how did that treasure get into that field? Was it, was it just, and what was the treasure? Was it a, a, a bag of gold? Was it, you know, and then he goes and he buys 
He sells everything he has. He buys the property. No, he doesn't just take the treasure. Right. He buys the property. And so there's that ambiguity gives us a lot to meditate on, a lot to think about. But one of the things that jumps out at me in terms of the economic uh, insights is that all of um, entrepreneurship is the process of discovery. What an entrepreneur does is discover um, a process whereby things that were there are combined perhaps in a slightly different way to create something that wasn't there before. And that becomes useful to other people. Uh, that's really what economic profit is. It's, it's showing that you have been a servant to other people, that people value what you have done. So entrepreneurship as a discovery process. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's really key. Um, the treasure, of course, the treasure is very often spoken of in the scriptures as wisdom. Yeah. And what, what this man is discovering is, is wisdom. Now, you could, if you were a socialist, say he's taking advantage of the market. He's taking advantage of the ignorance of the person who owned the field. And in a sense, that's right. But is that exploitative? Um, everyone who runs a restaurant is taking advantage of the hungry, hung, uh, the hunger of other people. Everyone who who uh, manufactures clothes is taking advantage of the nakedness of of people who come and buy those clothes. The question is, what the social benefit? If that man left the treasure in the ground, there would have been no social benefit to the hidden treasure right that he takes it out of the ground and does it honestly by buying the uh, the property that was going to be my point is it also shows the um the requirement for proper investment right because the the simplest thing would have been he found the hidden treasure in the field plucked it out and you know and, and took it with them which would have been theft right in this right. case right. If, if you're looking at it from an economic standpoint anyway this is somebody who actually went all in and investing in that property so that he could he could morally legally benefit from that treasure um and and i think that that's an to your point i think that's a very important aspect of there, that another, parable yeah there's another overlap of both the moral and the economic dimensions and that would be what was required of this man was attentiveness and vigilance uh, and, and that applies both in our spiritual lives, which is, of course, the supreme point of these parables. It's, it what it's what transcends this material world. But it also applies in, in the market. You have to be attentive to the market. You don't just throw your money out there and expect it to come back uh, multiplied. You have to see if these investments are solid investments. And so I, I think you get this uh, this kind of overlap of both the practical and uh, that is the economic and the moral. Uh, Father Sirico, I've got one more quick question for you. I got actually I have a guess for you here. You mentioned that the the question you get asked most is the passage about how much more 
easy it is for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. May I guess that the second most common question you get asked in these presentations is um, why we shouldn't follow Acts of the para- uh, Acts of the Apostles, at, which is not a parable, right. but you you tell you, you address no. this uh, and, uh, and, and simply divide all the all the stuff between everybody and sort of uh, go in for communism or socialism. Yeah, well, I mean that's what Marx thought. Marx thought that Act of the Apostles was primitive socialism. Uh, actually, I think it was Engels who who said that, but. Uh, of course, it shows that neither of them were very good exegetes because it is <laughs> text. They're just taking, taking this one thing out of Acts 2, but they don't follow the whole line of uh, the thought because there's an example a little later on in Acts that says of where this is actually happening. They would come and deposit the money at the feet of the apostles. And among the people who were depositing the money were a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they owned a field. And they went out and they sold the field and they brought back a part of the money and deposited at the feet of the apostles. And St. Peter is the one who gives the capitalist defense, if you will. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with words now because right. capitalism didn't exist then, right? But St. Peter says, uh, when you sold the property, was it not your own? And after you sold it and acquired the money. Did it not remain your own? In other words, he's affirming private property. This is your property. The problem is you lied right. to the Holy Spirit, and then they get their punishment. So uh, Peter himself <laughs> says, no, this was not socialism in the sense that socialism is coercive, right. not voluntary. Um, Churchill said that the socialism of of the early Christians, the Acts of the Apostles said, everything that is mine, that I have, is yours. And the modern socialist says, everything that you have is mine. And this is this is the whole perversion of Christianity in the name of socialism. Well, Father Robert Sirico, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I could do this for another hour or so, but you've got Thank other you, things Ed. to do. But Thank you. Acton Institute, where can, first off, where can people find Acton Institute? Acton.org, A-C-T-O-N.org, and a plethora of material, films and books and conferences. Oh, yeah. Like. Oh, yeah. It's, it's great. Acton.org. And don't forget to pick up The Economics of the Parables by Father Robert Sirico. It's on sale. Well, this week it's on sale. And, uh, pre-order pre-order uh, on um, Amazon, and you'll get it the same day as the bookstores will have it. There you go. You can beat the bookstores, which is... Don't you love capitalism? I love capitalism. (laughs) I absolutely love capitalism. Father Robert Sirico, thank you so much for being with us today. God bless, Ed. Thanks. God bless, sir. We'll be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show right after this. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you saw... Be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, Be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And 
while you're at it. If you're at any one of the town hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VP, VIP Gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's on-the-road journalism, first-person journalism, journalism you can trust from the border, from the unrest in cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. So we really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.